welcome back to Opera Offstage. I'm Jesse And I'm Michelle. And on April 30th, this Friday, it is International Jazz Day, which is what this episode is all about. Yes, we were looking through a big calendar of, you know how they have those calendars and it's like International Cupcake Day, like yada, yada, yada. So we were looking through one of <laughs> which those. Which is our next episode. Which, which is coming up real soon. <laughs> oh my gosh, can you imagine? But we were looking through one of those calendars and I didn't know that International Jazz Day existed. And I was like, Jesse, we have to do an episode on jazz and the way that it has influenced classical music and how it's different from classical music and people who have done kind of crossover covers or work within the two genres. And Jesse was like, uh, heck yes. So here we are today talking about jazz. This is also like almost a little bit of an intimidating topic to take on. It's not that I don't know what jazz is in like the technical sense. It's that, oh my gosh, I've met so many people who know so much more than we do. (laughs) That's so true. I think it's just like, we'll get into the differences between jazz musicians and even like the science between the differences between jazz musicians and classical musicians. But one of the points that I was reading in an article was we don't have very many common like frames of reference Like, there aren't a lot of pieces that both jazz musicians and classical musicians go, oh, yes, that. We know that. And so it's just kind of like both parties don't always have pieces that we both groove to, I guess. And so unless you like jazz as a classical musician, you might not necessarily be well-versed in it or have studied it or know its history. So it's definitely kind of a, a... intimidating topic because it's just jazz is so freaking cool we want to do it justice and and on that note like let's talk a little bit about like what our own personal connections to jazz are like what when when you think of jazz michelle like what comes to mind like what are the things that you think of oh my gosh well i definitely like was introduced to jazz as a kid because of my grandpa like we would just have all sorts of records playing especially like Aretha Franklin. We would have, you know, Frank Sinatra was a big one. Like anytime we got in the car, there was a Frank Sinatra CD, just like so many artists. And I don't know, it's just I became super comfortable with that type of sound. And I've just always loved it. And I feel like I go through phases of loving jazz where I'll listen to like a piece or I'll see like a new song or rediscover like an old hit that I had never heard. And then it's just like, catch me listening to jazz and only jazz for a month you know what I mean (laughs) like that's very much (laughs) been my my experience what about you yeah I think I think most people in our generation like you get a lot of your music from your parents and so yeah same here a lot of my first stuff was like Ella Fitzgerald Aretha Franklin (laughs) and then like when I got older I had some friends who introduced me to like you know Billie Holiday Nina Simone and and singers like that Nina and then I also, I got to see, I saw Tony Bennett in concert, and he does some jazz as well. I wouldn't consider him, like, he's kind of more of a crooner, but... uh Oh, yeah, and then you have, obviously, like, Miles yeah. Davis, Duke Ellington, you know, how could we leave oh out Louis gosh. Armstrong? Miles Davis, DK, Louis Armstrong. Yeah, just so many famous people, like, ugh. Yeah, I loved listening to those on CDs. There's so much depth to jazz. I think I think that's like the thing is like there is so much depth to jazz music and so much further you can go. But I think everyone has some kind of experience with jazz because that music is still so, so popular. Oh, yeah, for sure. And and 
even yeah. if you're not like a big jazz listener, the influence that jazz has had on pretty much every other genre of music is like you can just trace it back. And I think the other thing that gets me super jazzed about jazz is that it <laughs> is like truly an American art form. Like it's jazzed about jazz sounds like a children's program. <laughs> like, but it, go on. You know what I mean? Like jazz is cool. Like to me, when you when you listen to the music of like the white colonists, and it's just like little flutes. It's kind of it's kind of cheese ball, but jazz is freaking cool. <laughs> little flutes. I don't know where I just pulled that out from. <laughs> that's 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 the only thing that they brought from Europe was tiny tiny but jazz flutes. Is cool, and it's like a uniquely American type of art form, and and it's been cool because like you know obviously now we have International Jazz Day, and jazz can be listened to and appreciated, and is performed by artists all around the world but yeah before we get into some other things jesse do you want to give us like a little bit of history about kind of how jazz did spread across the world oh okay so i i hope in the future that we're gonna do a longer slightly more thorough episode about this topic but when i was in college most people do you have to write a bunch of papers to prove that you know how to write (laughs) and read and cite your sources (laughs) yeah you can't get through your degrees without reading and proving that you can. <laughs> when I was writing this paper, like I was trying to pick a topic that wasn't going to bore me to tears while I researched it, and I ended up choosing music as diplomacy. One of the things that a lot of people don't know is that around the Cold War era, mm-hmm. or after World War II and going into the Cold War era, the United States government used music to strengthen relations and improve their image around the world with other countries. And this included sending off, if you've ever heard of the pianist Mm -hmm. Van Cliburn, there's a whole story about him and all this other stuff. But they also sent out jazz bands. And this is interesting for so many reasons. Because, number one, jazz was not necessarily a well-liked art form around the world. You know, some European countries are stodgier than others about how music, like Russia, Russia didn't view jazz well. (laughs) They didn't particularly like it yet. Not only that, like, this is, you know, we're looking at, like, 1950s to 1970s. We're looking at the peak of the civil rights era. So not only that, while the U.S. government is actively fighting against people having full access to their own rights, they are at the same time hiring Dizzy Gillespie and all of these other singers and sending them around the world as diplomats, right? And even... This is like such a brief overview, which is why I hope we one day do a full episode so I can just talk for hours about this. But think think in your mind for a second. Like, what do you picture when you think of the jazz era? Like, what do you think of when you think of a jazz band? You mean in terms of like, in terms of what? Again, just in general? What What does a jazz band look like? Oh, like, yeah, definitely pioneered by black artists. Um, Absolutely. And definite, definite diversity in instruments when you're talking about bringing you know, a jazz band to European audiences. And you're totally right about, like, Russia and many countries being like, no, no, no. Like, even Shostakovich tried to write a piece and he had to really keep it under wraps on what exactly was identifiable as jazz for that reason. Yeah. So, you know, first of all, this these, these tours went to Asia, they went to Europe, they went to the, the Middle East, they went, they went to all over the world. So first of all, for a lot of Europeans, this might have been the first time they'd ever met a black person. <laughs> sure. Yeah. There were, at this time especially, there were still huge blocks, especially in like Eastern Europe, that were incredibly white. Mm-hmm. Not only that, you've got these, you know, the 
when we're talking about certain areas, certain areas were uh, still had women dressing in very, very conservative clothing. It wouldn't have been considered appropriate to wear some things, whereas jazz singers would kind of wear whatever they wanted. And so seeing these bands come up on stage and play these passionate pieces of music, you know, imagine seeing Dizzy Gillespie live or Duke Ellington uh, or Louis Armstrong, Benny Goodman. All of these people went abroad and were playing this incredibly passionate, very all-American music. And there's, there's just some amazing stories out of this time. There's a lot of writing mostly about Dizzy Gillespie. So specifically, they're talking about traveling through the Middle East. And as they traveled through the Mi- Middle East, a pattern began to emerge. So most of the audience they played for had never heard jazz, ever. It just hadn't really reached them yet. And before the concert, Marshall Stearns would give lectures on the history of jazz in order to get rid of this reputation that jazz was some kind of lowbrow art form. He would give them... And I think that's so cool that they would sit and have basically a talk back before the show. Oh, that's so cool. And then the band would get on stage occasionally to the discomfort of audiences, some of whom had never actually seen women perform. It wasn't always proper in certain places for women to be performers. And especially in the outfits that jazz singers would wear. However, usually as the concert went on, the audience would begin to clap along and and in the exact words of the people who were there, those venues would become as hot as any American spot where Dizzy Gillespie had performed. Fun! He would pose for photos, and he would play with street performers. And one time when it, one of his drummers was too sick to play, he invited a percussionist to come on from, from the town, from the city, to come on and play and jam with them. He, like, Dizzy Gillespie, like I said, did, did was the most well-documented person I could find. But it was hugely successful. Like, it did so much for America to send out these jazz performers. And it changed the way a lot of people viewed jazz. And it changed the way that a lot of people thought about culture in America. Oh, I can imagine. It's kind of interesting when you, like, first start listening to jazz as a kid. You don't always remember, like, the first time you listened to jazz or, like, what exactly you listened to. But could you imagine, like, being in wherever they were performing and, like, listening to jazz for the first time? Like, that would be so cool. Like, and just experiencing that, I'm sure it would be very shocking to European and abroad audiences in terms of, like, just the rhythm and the instruments and obviously, like, seeing a demographic of people that you would, like, never see on stage. Like, I just can't imagine what a shock it would be. But I love the fact that they end up clapping along and are totally into it because jazz, like, does have that level of intimacy where it's just, I mean, certain jazz is very hard to understand unless you're like a jazz aficionado but a lot of jazz is like you can immediately connect to it it immediately like just gets you dancing you know oh my gosh yeah i mean it just it's incredible and here's here's the thing though we're hoping to start a series for this exact reason but like it drives me crazy that that's not something we talked about in class Mm -hmm. like that's crazy one of like the one of like the biggest uses of musicians as like officially diplomatic entities in America and we don't talk about it. Like I remember hearing about Van Cliburn and his time in the in that piano competition in Russia. I had heard about it just from people talking about it. I had never heard about this until I came across a book about it. And that's such a shame. And and for that exact reason we're hoping like like I said I'd love to do a full episode and like really dig into what was going on during this time. Really dig into the like the oppositional reality of the fact that like they were hiring and sending off black musicians while still denying them rights and and how that power balance uh, shifted and how it may have had an effect but also like we want to start a series called unspoken histories to talk about some of these bigger histories that get glossed over 
in in classes because there's so much interesting stuff that gets buried because of who writes the textbooks. I'm sorry. Are you saying that in our white, white (laughs) music history classes, we don't look at the fact that we sent out black artists showcasing their own art to all of these other nations and it was a good thing and and people enjoyed it? We don't talk about that in in our music history classes? What? No way. That's got to be in there somewhere, right? Ugh. Pain. 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 Ugh. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But yeah, it's so interesting. And if you're interested, there are documentaries and there are books on this subject. And they are, they're all really interesting. It's, it's, I don't know. It's astounding. It's really a cool topic to dig into. Yeah. So thank you for letting me ramble about it. (laughs) No, it is very, very fascinating. I mean, I had heard of this vaguely And perhaps it's because you probably told me about it while we were still in undergrad. But yeah, this isn't something that we talk about, like, as a mass culture, even just like as Americans. Like, we like to talk about how jazz is so cool, but we don't talk about how it was actually very important for diplomacy. But let's talk about maybe why jazz can be so shocking to these these European and broad audiences. And even just how even today, jazz music is so different from classical music and how, you know, you're not going to find a lot of artists who are equally skilled in both. And I think that just the fundamentals of jazz and classical music and the way that they think about rhythm is just so opposite. Obviously, rhythm is like incredibly important to all forms of music, but to jazz, it is the heartbeat. There's, (laughs) like I dare say, very few things that are more important than rhythm and it's not really an expressive element to them it's more of just if the rhythm is not 100% on track at all times how can you improvise how can different band members go off and do the solos or venture from the melody and do something else if there isn't something for them to come back to that is kind of the rock the foundation for what the the jazz band is doing and while like rhythm can be expressive at times it's more so like If you're going against the rhythm, it's because you are building tension or you're about to change meters and the whole band is going there. But in in terms of like actual tempo fluctuation, it is super strict and never to be avoided. Obviously, kind of the opposite is true for classical musicians. Rhythm can be a very, very expressive element like rubato. You know, we see all the time and things like Puccini and all different other types of classical works. And by either pushing or slowing the pulse, you can use that to support, you know, a musical line. You can use that to express certain words in a verse. It's used and kind of messed with all the time for dramatic purposes. So we're not really so tied on being strictly in rhythm. Like it would be complete nonsense if you performed classical music completely in rhythm all the time, right? Yeah. That would just no, be like, people would yell at you. Yeah, people would be like, wow, way to not be musical. Whereas with jazz, if you're like bending the rhythm, your band's going to be pissed at you because how can they do what they got to do if you're all over the place? The band would just fall apart. Yeah. Well, I think too, like, I mean, when we talk about like classical musicians and there's definitely there's a very different feel between a stage full of classical musicians and a stage full of jazz musicians in terms of people reading each other. Mm -hmm. Like, I think the closest you could even get is maybe like a string quartet where people are so tightly like so tightly in tune with the other person like they're they're all very aware of each other's every movement and like where everyone's going whereas i think with a lot of classical music you're (laughs) you're less trusting of the people around you well i mean in classical music (laughs) you're just staring down a conductor 
Well, exactly. That's what I was going to say. Like in classical music, what a jazz band just has innately because they're keeping such strong, strict rhythm. We as classical musicians have to rely on a conductor to tell us what's going on for the, like, the exact same reason, because it's just too hard for an orchestra to negotiate rubato if there's not a person who is defining it for them. Like you just can't get 80 people to to do the same thing. Whereas when you have a small or even a large jazz band, if the rhythm is strict, then everybody is on the same page. You can't get 80 people to groove. <laughs> yeah. Like, you know, classical musicians would fall apart without their conductors. I think everybody's done is some sort of performance that should have had a conductor that didn't. And we all know how that goes. Bruh. <laughs> but for that same reason, like, it's very, it can be very difficult for classical players to really groove and, like, really stick to a strict rhythm and kind of push it while sticking to a strict rhythm. Whereas with jazz players, it can be really hard for them to do a very convincing rubato. It's just very, it's it kind of polar opposites on how they think about rhythm, which is interesting because rhythm is, is pretty much the foundation for both of them. Another huge difference is uh, dynamics. When you think about classical music, you know, dynamics are everything. That's a huge expressive element. It's literally written into all of our music. It's something that the conductor is also in charge of. You can go from pianississimo to like full 150 piece like masterworks and just have like the loudest music you've ever heard. But with jazz, it's not as much of an expressive element because the overall dynamic of jazz in general is much louder than classical music, at least like at the chamber music level. And a lot of this has to do with the prominence of a drum set in jazz. And anybody who's ever performed in a band knows that the second that you're rehearsing with a drummer, everything is louder. That's the second that you, if you weren't performing with amplification, especially as a singer, before you... You are now. You are now because <laughs> you just cannot, and a lot of instruments just cannot compete with a drum set. And obviously a drum set is so prevalent in jazz and is extremely loud compared to any other chamber instrument and with rock music becoming so popular has become even louder so usually jazz musicians unless it's like a very very like four person band is playing at a fairly high and very fairly consistent volume and to basically compete with the drum set all the other jazz musicians usually just play louder to also be able to compete and so dynamics there's not as much wiggle room you can't really play so tenderly on a saxophone or a jazz trumpet if you are competing with a with a drum set and so it's interesting because when you see these jazz bands or jazz instruments collaborate with you know a a classical string ensemble you have a lot of different albums that are like that jazz musicians have to play like an eighth of their normal volume to even blend. And it's very interesting seeing those types of collaborations because you're working with two very different types of instruments and different types of playing and different ideas around dynamic. And so for them to all work together is a very interesting balance. Yeah, it's definitely, it's not something we always consider, which is like (laughs) trying to balance, especially in such a small space, because when we think about jazz clubs and we think about jazz venues, there wasn't always the kind of space you would have in, like, say, an orchestral hall. Mm-hmm. God, it was loud, I'm sure. <laughs> oh, yeah. Exactly. Yeah, and, and as far as singers go, if you're going to have a singer, you pretty much had amplification because there's no way. Oh, yeah. Another big, like, just difference is that the way that classical musicians and jazz musicians think about, like, vibrato and intonation. Vibrato 
is not something that jazz musicians in general like practice as much as you know if you think about a string player that's like the core of their playing like vibrato practice is an absolutely essential part of their music development whereas with jazz musicians it's usually has less control and less like variety and speed and amplitude and it's just not used as an expressive element as much as it is in classical music and I think the big thing is intonation this is a huge difference if you are out of tune as a classical musician like you might as well just like leave the stage (laughs) like people do not have any any wiggle room for stuff like that you you cannot be out of tune in a performance as a classical musician. That is just not a thing. Whereas in jazz, that can be an, a, a form of a, a certain jazz musician's type of tone. Like when you look at Coltrane, like he is very shrill in some of like the higher parts of his music, but like nobody cares because that's just kind of his angsty style. And like it's an expressive element. It's totally an expressive element. And I think like, you know, even in the classical music world, we have orchestras tuned before every single concert, even between movements. Whereas like a lot of jazz musicians are just kind of still hoping to be in tune by the end. You know what I mean? Like it's not it's just not a big deal to them. And, you know, intonation is kind of just more expressive. It's just it's a little bit more flexible it's not something that is so obsessed over like cl- um, with classical musicians. And I just think that that's really fun. And I think also like when you just start having a band made up of so many brass instruments, like I don't think that you're thinking so technically to be like, is this little squeak perfectly in tune 100% of the time? Like that would be really, really tough, especially when you're improvising. Like it just I think they naturally don't don't fit together. Yeah. Yeah. And like the other like there are other skills that like don't necessarily go hand in hand with being a jazz musician. And this isn't to say that jazz musicians cannot, but like, for example, reading music. Like there's a different way you prepare jazz music from how you prepare a lot of classical pieces. So for example, Stravinsky's Ebony Concerto, the work was written for clarinetist Woody Herman and his jazz band, The Thundering Herd. Which to me is so funny to think about like Stravinsky writing jazz, I guess, just because (laughs) of my internal image of Stravinsky. And like, it's not his style of music. There's just like, you know, when you can't picture two time, like two eras coinciding. Oh, yeah. (laughs) That's what's Stravinsky. So Stravinsky writes this work and he's doing his best to incorporate jazz idioms into a concerto grosso for jazz band. But Woody Herman was a little bit disappointed with the result because to him, it sounded a lot like Stravinsky and not enough like actual jazz, which if you're a jazz musician is really intimidating. Oh, yeah. But Herman, like, obviously, you know, we're talking about Stravinsky and Stravinsky was, I mean, so well known, (laughs) like, no, not a doubt. So he's probably kind of scared and embarrassed. Like, you don't want to say no to Stravinsky either. Right. But during the rehearsals with Stravinsky, Herman realized that, like, he and his band didn't quite have the sight reading ability to keep up with the music. <laughs> Which, like, to be fair, I I don't know many musicians who could full on sight read Stravinsky confidently. I was going to say, you know, when it comes to St- Stravinsky, like, I do not blame. Yeah, like, I don't think that's on the jazz musicians. Yeah, I do not blame him. That's why I That's why I said, like, the way you prepare music in those two ways is differently, because I don't know anybody who would be truly great at, like, sight-reading Stravinsky. Like, <laughs> yeah, yeah. sight-reading it cold. Because I, I know there are some people here who are like, well, I could, write, I could sight-read Stravinsky. Uh, like, could you sight-read a Stravinsky you had never heard before that was half jazz? Yeah. <laughs> 
<laughs> yeah, I didn't think so. Back it up. <laughs> yeah, it's it's you know so much of of jazz is is getting the melody and then you know <laughs> kind of taking it off the page and then translating it with the band and just making it your own. Whereas with classical music, like orchestras performing and always rehearsing up until they finish the piece are with their sheet music. Like that's just I didn't realize. I didn't realize orchestra musicians, like, sometimes just show up, like, cold, no practice to rehearsals. Goodbye. That as Y'all a, are crazy. a singer, like, you guys are insane. Could I, not. I could never. I would be so... I, I would be so nervous. <laughs> There's no way. Simply pass away. Michelle and I were talking about this, because, like, we don't always know what's going on with you guys in the orchestra. We assume you're like us, and, like, like I just... Somebody explained it to me and I was terrified. <laughs> my soul left my body. Like, those are the contents of my stress dreams. Being, like, walking up to a performance and just receiving the music for the first time. Like, goodbye. <laughs> no, thank you. But a, a quick little tidbit on this uh, Woody Herman Stravinsky <laughs> story is that Herman was told that Stravinsky was a huge fan of his of his and his band and herman was like oh what really like he likes my music that's really cool like i'm really excited to like collaborate with him that was a lie one of herman's (laughs) band members (gasps) told herman that so that he would like feel better stravinsky never heard him before (laughs) like i also like what didn't really know jazz that well and i think that was like his one of his early examples of him kind of like putting in jazz which is really funny to me because i love that herman was like oh wow this like prominent classical composer like knows me like and is writing a piece for us like that's so cool i can't wait and then like later when he says like this is stravinsky not jazz like that cracks me up (laughs) stravinsky's just like on the streets like herman i don't know this man like i love it (laughs) my whole soul has also left my body once again oh my gosh (laughs) That band member was just trying to be nice, but made things probably so much more awkward. But anyways, we would be remiss if we didn't talk about the biggest difference between jazz and classical music, which is improvisation. I want to watch a video of of jazz improvisers trying to get classical, like peak classical musicians to improvise. Yeah, just rough. I want to see Anna Netrebko improvise. (laughs) It's just, like, so, so interesting. I mean, it's not that classical musicians can't improvise, obviously, but I think it it really comes down to just the way that we think about music, and it's the way that we... It's the speed at which we're able to improvise, right? Because if you're saying, like, classical musician improvise, and they have to think about what they want to do for five minutes, it's not improv- improvisation. Whereas, like, with a jazz musician, you can just say, like hey, play these series of chords and then just do your own thing. And they just do it on the spot. Like it just, that's how their brain works. And it's interesting because there's actually a study on this exact thing published by the Max Planck Institution for Human Cognitive and Brain Sciences. And basically what they were testing was, you know, they had a group of uh, jazz pianists and classical pianists, and both groups were shown a hand-playing a sequence of chords on a computer screen and the sequence was scattered with mistakes and harmonies and fingerings and the pianists basically had to imitate the hand movements and react to the irregularities 
And while this was happening, their brain signals were being recorded with sensors that they had, like, you know, in those, like, sci-fi movies that they put the thing on your head. Like, same thing. (laughs) Yeah. And basically, they're watching these hands play these chords. And there's, like, these two fundamental differences. Jazz musicians had a a faster reaction time. When they came across those irregularities in the harmonic progression, they were able to adapt and improvise really easily. So part of the test was they would, you know, be given like a series of chords and then like have some note that they had to play like on the spot and they would just be able to do it and figure out the roadmap way faster than a classical musician. And then conversely, while classical musicians on average had a slower reaction time, they were actually focused on the fingering and technical skill, and because of this, made fewer mistakes when copying these irregularities. So in certain tests where they needed to kind of improvise on the spot, obviously jazz musicians did way better than classical musicians, but in terms of just playing weird chords, classical musicians actually did a better job because they had a little bit more of like the technical skill, the like focus on fingering on their sides and were able to copy the weird irregularities that the hands were doing more accurately which I just thought was super, super interesting. Yeah. I mean, like, that's the whole point is like, it's not a, it's not a competition of like, what's better classical musicians or jazz. It's just such two entirely different skill sets because of what they're doing. Yeah. And I mean, different parts of the brain were lighting up when jazz musicians were playing and when classical musicians were playing. And so I totally agree with you. It's not a matter of like, who's better. It's just two different ways of looking. Adapting to what you have to. Yeah, it's just two different skills and the way that it's expressed and the things that are focused on. And one is not better than the other. They're just different. And I think that that's so cool. And it makes so much sense because like, yeah, we can talk about the science of what part of the brain lights up for these two types of musicians. But like all you need to do to really understand that is just to listen to jazz musicians play and to listen to classical musicians play. And like listening to the two genres of music, they're very, very very different so speaking of jazz inspired like classical works and composers jesse you kind of talked about these bands going over and around the world and performing for all different types of audiences but the we had a lot of the opposite happen where we had these composers actually experiencing jazz for the first time while visiting america for tours and such and a good example is actually ravel was one of the many composers who actually found inspiration in jazz especially the music of darling George Gershwin, whom we all love. And, you know, we know him for his work for his piano concerto in G major. And that music apparently came to him while he was riding a train in England. But a lot of that concerto is actually influenced by the American jazz music that Ravel heard while on a piano tour in the U.S. in 1928, which I just think is super, super cool. Like, I love the idea of Ravel just chilling in the U.S. and like listening to jazz music and taking it back with him. Like, I think that's so cool. Once again, it's one of those things where you think about the eras and you're like, okay, yeah, that makes sense, but it doesn't. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. But like, if anyone was going to enjoy it, it would be Ravel. Yeah. And in 1922, also, French composer, I don't know how to pronounce this man's name. I'm so sorry. Darius Milot? Sure. Um, Embarked (laughs) on an American tour as well. I'm so sorry to this French composer. And while in America, he was also enraptured by the jazz clubs in Harlem, uh, which later inspired the music for his ballet, La Creation du Monde. So I love that we have jazz to ballet. Like, that is just so cool. So this happened with a lot of the... uh, I can't think of anything more stressful than trying to, like, (laughs) dance to jazz. 
like in a classical form. And I'm sure it was awesome, but it scares me. Yeah, it's just very funny. But yeah, so I just think that that's super cool. And like we also have artists melding jazz and classical music. So in the 1950s and 60s, Gunther Schuller advocated for like a school of composition that he referred to as the third stream. And this like school of thought basically freely drew from both jazz and classical vocabularies. And it was kind of about them being equal and you can hear this in the in his piece Triplum, which basically combines elements of the second Viennese school, like kind of atonality with figures from jazz music. I was gonna say occasionally jazz does feel like atonality's cooler older brother. <laughs> yes. Absolutely. Yeah. Like if atonality was spicy, that's where it, what happens in jazz. If atonality was fun. <laughs> yeah, if people enjoyed atonality. It's probably when it's in jazz. That's what we call experimental jazz. Yeah, exactly. But I love that so many people, like, upon hearing one or the other, or people who were well-versed in both, were just like, hey, these two would be really cool together. And I, as a 21st century listener, 100% agree. Well, yeah. And I think, I mean, you were talking about Ravel, and of course, Ravel heard Gershwin. And we would be remiss if we didn't talk about Gershwin and Rhapsody in Blue because of how big that piece was for so many people. Beyond. I am sure that if you are a classical musician, you've probably heard Rhapsody in Blue. You've probably heard it in a concert because it is one of the most popular American concert works of all time. Like it is. You just know it, okay? It's You just know it. <laughs> the opening to Rhapsody in Blue is instantly recognizable. And the the only sexy blessing to clarinetists. <laughs> the so clarinet true. is a beautiful instrument, but it is not sensual, except at the opening of Rhapsody in Blue. There's going to be some clarinetist who writes to me. But, like, without a doubt, you can't tell me, like, the gliss at the opening of that is not, like, oh yeah, so freaking hot. <laughs> it's so good. Rhapsody in Blue is just sexy. There's no other way about it. Right? And, and a lot of history books do mark... Rhapsody in Blue is like part of of the beginning of a new era in America's music, and like it was a it it was a star maker for Gershwin. Like it, it was like where he started to stake his claim in the musical world. The piece is commissioned by band leader Paul Whiteman, and it premieres in 1924 in New York City uh, at a concert called "An Experiment in Modern Music," which is a little funny to think about now. Hilariously, actually, quite like Ravel, he actually says that he started imagining the piece when he was on a train journey to Boston. So there's something about trains that just gets people in the jazz mood. But yeah, this piece is definitely considered to be like a key and like iconic part of the jazz age musically. But there is there's something to be said about the fact that like that one of our most recognizable jazz pieces is is by a white man, a very white man who wrote show tunes. <laughs> mm-hmm. And I love Gershwin. And I do think Gershwin, at his heart, like, did care about the people he was using the music of. I do think he cared about black people and African Americans in America. And-, and he understood where his music came from. I think that's part of the reason he wanted to write Porgy and Bess and why he, in his contract for that, stipulates that the cast has to be black. You can't put a bunch of white people on stage in it. Like, I do think he cared. But that doesn't change the fact that, like, there is something when we talk about some of these pieces in jazz and we talk about Gershwin and we talk about Bernstein and we talk about 
Copeland and Ravel and Milhau and Schuler and all of these people that like these are the names that sometimes get remembered when we get out of jazz clubs and onto orchestral stages. Yep. That gap. And that matters. I mean, that's, uh, you know, even when I was talking about jazz diplomacy, this huge cultural movement to to get America's culture out into the world and stake a claim as a country that's, you know, hundreds of years younger than some of these other ones, that we don't talk about the people who were making it or where it came from or whose music they listened to when they were writing Rhapsody in Blue. Mm -hmm. And it's just something to consider when we talk about, because there's nothing wrong with loving Rhapsody in Blue. It's a great piece. It's so fun. I would listen to it at any point. Yeah, you just have to understand the figures that make Rhapsody in Blue so great and the style and the music that makes Rhapsody in Blue so great was, you know, originated by black artists in America. Exactly. But like, you know, I I mentioned Porgy and Bess, but let's actually talk about some jazz operas, because that's actually another... Another thing that most people don't know is that there is jazz opera out there. It's been it's been around for over a hundred years. Yeah, a great example of one of the earliest examples, and this kind of falls under the category a lot of people call it a ragtime opera, which I just thought like when I saw that I was like, huh, that's cool. Is Scott Joplin's Tremonesia, and it's basically the so far I think the only opera in existence about the Reconstruction era and the African American experience written by. A black man who actually lived through it. So it's a very, very important piece just for that alone. And the work was first premiered as a concert read-through in Harlem in, I believe, 1910. And shockingly, Joplin's original 1911 performance materials for the opera were almost entirely destroyed in the early 1960s. And I couldn't find why exactly, but like historians were freaking out. But luckily, Tremonisha was first revived by the Atlanta Symphony Orchestra in collaboration with the Glee Club of Morehouse College and led by conductor, as you'll know him, Robert Shaw. And <laughs> as That's you so know. so funny to me because I think of Robert Shaw so much for like choral pieces. Mm-hmm. No, he's having a great Jeez. old time with Tremonisha. Um, so basically in 1972, the performance was a success and it introduced Joplin's operas to a much wider audience. And then just a couple years later, Tremonisha actually premiered at the Houston Grand Opera and became a hit across American stages. And you can actually watch the original Houston Grand Opera performance for free on YouTube. And the opera is only like an hour 30, an hour 35. So it's very, very easy to watch. Um, it's not too long. And it's a very interesting Because within the conventions of European opera, Joplin, very successfully, in my opinion, infuses many elements of ragtime, uh, spirituals, fiddle tunes, hymns, and African dance into the music. And so it's this very cool, jazzy, ragtimey music within the conventions of European opera. You still have your, your big overture, which the overture is so interesting to me. It's so fun because you hear those, those jazzy, rhythms right off the bat but they're being played by an orchestra and it's very interesting to hear how the houston grand opera orchestra is negotiating those rhythms as an orchestra because now like that's a normal thing like you have jazz music or jazz inspired music or jazz influenced music played by orchestras all the time like i think we're a little bit more savvy but back then it was still a little bit more new And so it's just, it's interesting to hear the way that the orchestra is negotiating these complex rhythms with a ginormous string section. I would definitely advise that you go check it out. Yeah. I mean, that's incredible. When you think about, like, trying to get an entire orchestra, you know, in line with 
with ragtime, which like this is a little pre a little bit pre jazz. That's fair to say. But it's I mean, it's the forerunner. It's so cool. Well, I mean, jazz is being born during this time. You know what I mean? Like, we really have jazz in the, like, 1920s is when it really starts taking off. Like, in 1910, like, this is when all those famous jazz musicians who came up with jazz were, like, you know, experimenting. And, like, yeah, exactly. Like, before jazz became jazz, we have little ragtime. And it's interesting to see elements that we will later recognize as jazz hidden in Tremonisha. Yeah, and it's another one of those operas that a lot of people don't know about. Like, a lot of people obviously know Joplin. You do talk about Joplin in music history, but you don't talk about his opera. Mm-hmm. Oh, and like, and now to mention a, a <laughs> nearly a hundred years later, over a hundred years later, we have the the fire shut up in our bones by Terence Blanchard. So Terence Blanchard is a an American trumpeter and composer and. If you're not familiar with him as a jazz musician or as a classical composer, classical and jazz, you might know him because he also works quite a bit with Spike Lee. So he has won awards for his film scores for Black Klansman and The Five Bloods. Um, he has like five Grammys and like 14 nominations. He's a very well-known musician. And I love when film composers get into opera because I think that's the closest in like outside of direct opera composition you can get mm-hmm. to that kind of narrative writing. Yeah. But uh, he... He has two operas, actually. I didn't know this when when I originally heard about him because he is premiering The Fire Shut Up in My Bones with, uh, well, he's not premiering it there. He premiered it years ago. (laughs) But it will be the first opera on the Mets stage in the Mets 140 year history. First production with a black composer, which is ridiculous (laughs) and frustrating. Don't even get me started. We're (laughs) we're celebrating, but... But with a with a look on our face. Yeah. The, and, and the work was actually premiered with Opera Theatre of St. Louis, who also premiered his other work, Champion. The, the interesting thing about this piece, so this piece, The Fire Shut Up in My Bones, is, a, is based on an autobiography by Charles Blow, who is a journalist. And it goes through his whole life. And so not only is it jazz, it's actually taking all the music from this man's life and putting it in there. So there's gospel and there's big band music and there's anything you would have grown up with. Because this opera is traveling all through his life, he's played by two different characters. One who is a young boy and one who is, you know, in his 20s. Like it, it there are two people playing him and they often sing duets, which I just think is so neat. So cool. It doesn't just stay strict to jazz. He's taken all of these parts, all of these pieces of music that make up a lifetime and and woven them together. And he prefers to call it opera in jazz as opposed to a jazz opera. And I think that's specific to that idea that we were talking about earlier with with Stravinsky. The idea that like when Stravinsky wrote that piece, it was more Stravinsky than it was jazz. And so I think in the point that he's making by calling it opera in jazz is that it is not jazz adapting to opera. It is opera adapting to jazz, which I think is kind of neat. Spicy. And I like the the use of words, the careful use of words there. Um, but you have, love, like I said, you have these long lyrical lines that's like cut into like snappy little declamations. And you have big band music and jazz rhythm section. You've got gospel choruses and blues and uh, spoken word. All of these different pieces of music that make up the history of jazz and the things that would come after jazz too. And I think the nice the interesting thing is like the vast ability to express yourself in jazz music the story of charles blow is dark 
in a lot of ways. It deals with understanding your sexuality. Um, it has to do with sexual assault. It has to do with, uh, it's, you know, a coming of age story. It has to deal with growing up in a world that doesn't like you. And I, I think, I can't wait to see it. I think it's been too long. I love the idea of opera and jazz. I think that is the key to moving forward with opera, is stop putting opera necessarily at the forefront. Oh, that gets me so hype. I'm so excited. Come on, Met. Right? And the original show, the original premiere had Karen Slack. It had Julia Bullock. God bless. You know, I right? <laughs> Karen Slack, say no more. <laughs> like, I'm already, <laughs> say I'm already ready. No more. <laughs> oh, that's so spicy. Are you ready for me to close this out? Well, we hope that you learned a little bit about jazz, the differences between jazz and classical music, the interesting ways that America used jazz as a form of diplomacy, and some examples of you know jazz by both the people who created it and came up with the genre and classical composers that then ran with it. And don't forget, International Jazz Day is coming up this Friday, April 30th. So listen to some jazz. It actually became officially designated as a like a national holiday in 2011 to highlight jazz as, and its diplomatic role of uniting people in all corners of the globe. So listen to some jazz, bust out some Miles Davis, some Louis Armstrong, some John Coltrane, some Ella Fitzgerald. And uh, have yourself a great little Friday. We hope you guys have a great day. Don't forget to follow us on all of our socials. You can find us at Opera Offstage. And we will see you guys next week. Bye. Bye. Bye.